This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. The town of Lemoyne recently passed a moratorium on glamp grounds with an overwhelming majority of voters in support. Amy Morley helped organize the effort, and she's with us today to talk about why and what lessons other towns might take. I'm Amy Morley. I live in Lemoyne, and I got started with this project in Lemoyne. It really began for me uh, late in January. I remember I uh, was laying in bed reading the news on my phone at like 5.30 a.m. and I saw an article in the Ellsworth American Dome Glamping Resort applies for site in Lemoyne. And I bolted out of bed and thought, I don't want this to happen in Lemoyne. And that's when it really began for me. And seven months later, we've had a great success in making sure that that project did not happen in Lemoyne. So what happened over the course of the um, seven months in April and in February and April, there were some planning board meetings where CPEX, the Arizona based uh, company who was proposing a large scale glamp ground in Lemoyne. And this glamp ground consisted of 90 units with each of them having kitchens. They were eight, about 800 square feet uh, 400 to 800 square feet each, plus a wedding dome, activity domes, a spa, a outside pool, employee housing. It was just a, it was essentially a, a large scale resort that would be in rural Lemoyne. So CPEX had applied for this uh, development project and the planning board had been meeting with CPEX to review their application and make sure they had all of the were meeting all the requirements of the application over the course of several months and CPEX kept submitting additional materials by the time of the May 1st meeting the planning board deemed the application complete with conditions and that's what really started this process so over the course of May until April 15th, for three and a half months, we've been working hard to oppose this resort. And what we immediately did, myself and other residents of Lemoyne, we formed a group called Growing Lemoyne Responsibly. And we decided to form a group that had a broader purpose and our, with the project being to first oppose this development. So the, the purpose of Growing Lemoyne Responsibly was to help to promote the comprehensive plan that was signed by Lemoyne in 2020. And so for our purpose, it was to encourage small and home-based businesses and to promote the rural character of Lemoyne and natural beauty. So at first, uh, our group, Growing Lemoyne Responsibly, started talking to people and in Lemoyne. Some people seemed resigned to the fact that once this proposal was put in, that it was um, a foregone conclusion that CPEX would, you know, have their resort or or a minimized version. The reason they felt that way is because our ordinances currently do allow for hotels and motels. However, 
the comprehensive plan that was enacted three years ago made a recommendation that that the ordinances be revised to remove hotels and motels. The vision for Lemoyne was very clear. It just had not been, the land use ordinances had not been revised to reflect the vision of the comprehensive plan. Certainly part of that was probably COVID and the planning board is a volunteer board that's you know been appointed and they have a lot of development proposals and they just hadn't had time to you know, put those recommendations into the land use ordinance. So Lemoyne was exposed. However, with a comprehensive plan in place, we had all of the reason to pursue opposition to this development. It was only logical. So, but however, a lot of Lemoyne residents seemed to feel like it was a David and Goliath kind of situation and it just felt insurmountable. So what we did is we, well, I should say that, however, a lot of Lemoyne residents were clearly unified in not being happy about this. It's just that I'm not sure that people could see a path forward. So we engaged the use of land use attorneys, Murray Plum and Murray in Portland, and they helped guide our, our steps because really it became clear from the get-go that this was a legal situation. So what happened is on May 1st, the planning board did deem the application complete with the condition that the applicant received the approval from the Department of Environmental Protection in, in Maine. So once that was deemed complete, the application, it triggered a public hearing on, on June 5th, which was very well attended. But citizens in Lemoyne expressed their concern about water usage, possible contamination, traffic, all sorts of things. And what we were focused on was the fact that the, the planning board had sort of moved forward a little faster than we would have liked because the land use ordinance actually requires DEP, um, not just application to the DEP, but approval before an applicant will even go to the planning board with a development of this, of this size. Because they phrased it the way they did, our land use attorneys wrote to the planning board and expressed in legal detail why they thought that they should follow the guidance of their own ordinance. And we were able to speak to the DEP as well and find out the status of the application that they hadn't even applied yet. And from that, we were able as a group to express at the public hearing on June 5th, the legal ramifications of moving forward. And what that meant is that at the next planning board meeting on June 19th, the planning board was able to negotiate with CPECs. They requested that review of the application not begin for two more months. CPECs agreed to that, and that really allowed us time to do to gather enough signatures on a citizen's petition to request to the select board that they hold a special town meeting to vote on a moratorium on hotels, motels, campgrounds, and resort development in Lemoyne. So over the course of 
it was a very short time period after the after the public hearing on June 5th that we were able to obtain not double but almost double the number of signatures that we needed to bring that before the select board and we also had a revision to the moratorium so we actually collected signatures twice and it was clear from this work that we couldn't find hardly anyone that was in support of this development. A couple of people who had some questions and once that went to the select board, then they scheduled a special town meeting and all of this proceeded pretty quickly. And the problem was that the planning board had a meeting with CPEX the week before the special town meeting. Now they did begin review of the application at that time. However, our attorneys were prepared to file a complaint because the planning board had not posted notice that they were gonna have that conversation. It seems we don't need to, to do that because of what followed. But at, so at the, at the special town meeting on August 15th, where um, the voters of Lemoyne could come out to vote on this moratorium to halt development in Lemoyne for 180 days. It was an amazing, it was an amazing special town meeting. Everyone has said from Steve Fuller at the Ellsworth American, who's attended a lot of town meetings, to Stu Marcoon, the town administrator, to the moderator, whose name I, I can't recall at the time, but everyone said that it just shattered the record attendance. The school could only hold, uh, the school gym is supposed to hold about 200 people. And admittedly, we did go over the fire code because we didn't know what to expect, but there were, there were 399 people in attendance and there were only uh, a handful of people. It looked like two to me, but I think because it was, it was a vote by raise of hands. We can't be sure of the exact number. So I guess the official record by the town were saying less than 10, but I was there and it looked like about two people voted no. Everyone else voted yes. And the room was so jam-packed. There was a line going outside onto the sidewalk. It actually took longer to get everyone in the room than it did to vote. And the, the meeting started 40 minutes late because they were trying to get everyone into the room, um, checking your voter registration. And it, it was just an amazing display of community and democracy. So we voted to enact that moratorium and it was immediately enacted and in action. And the moratorium had a retroactivity built into it that meant that any developments permitted or partially permitted 45 days before would also be affected. So the fact that the CPEX had met with the planning board on August 7th to begin review did not affect um, did not mean that the moratorium didn't affect them. It, it did. About a week ago, we also learned that the land was up for sale again. So it seems that the purchase and sale agreement that CPEX had with um, their realtor is no longer in effect. I know that their purchase and sale agreement, um, the condition of that agreement was 
that they would get town approval and DEP approval. And so I'm not sure exactly, you know, what caused them to lose that contract or if they pulled out willingly. But I think one thing is clear is that by just staying focused on the legal steps and engaging citizens, which we did many weekends at the transfer station to collect signatures and to hand out flyers. We had mailings. We, you know, created our website and social media. And um, our goal was to have just about four to 500 people because we wanted to send a clear message to the planning board that we would like them to revise the ordinances and they have indicated that they got the message and they are going to be working on this. We also wanted to send a message to CPEX that this type of development is not wanted. It's not part of the vision for Lemoyne. It seems like you've really put your, your finger on a hot button issue here. And one that, that I and Jim Campbell, who uh, hosted a series with me, Maine the Way Life Could Be last year, heard about from a lot of town planners and people living in coastal towns in Maine, which is tourism is great, but we also need to keep a town here. You know, this is a place where people live year round and aren't rich and can't afford, what, $300, $400, $500 a night to go glamping with the pandemic refugees, you know, COVID refugees coming up here, as well as other movement. So many of the homes are just summer homes now. And so in some communities, it may be too late for people who were raised there to actually afford to live there. You could make that argument about Portland, but you're being proactive and you're really, really close to Bar Harbor. So you're going to be an example because the pressure I think there is, you know, develop every square inch. I want to be as close to Acadia as possible. What do you think your other folks in other towns who may be considering such a thing who want to put a moratorium on, you know, clamp grounds aren't things people had heard of before a year or two ago, probably, uh, who want to try to keep the town protected primarily so the residents don't have to deal with all that water being taken and all the other things that were upsetting people in Lemoyne. Mm. Yes, Amy, I think that, well, first of all, I grew up in Bar Harbor my family were transplants, so we'll always be from away, from Illinois, but I did move to Bar Harbor in the 1980s, late 1980s, and as a child, and so I've seen the development, and even back then, tourism was obviously the backbone of the economy, but things have really shifted, so when people lately are talking about Sometimes I see people talking kind of in black and white about tourism that that if we if if tourism is the one of our main economies in Maine it's as if we have to embrace all types of tourism but that's not really the thinking that informed the past and I think it it shouldn't inform the future we have to like you said we have to look in detail about what types of development will will help with Maine for the future. And one way to look at it is, it's kind of maybe silly, but I I don't think the reason people come to Lemoyne, even as visitors, is because of something like a large resort. People who come to Lemoyne, for instance, 
I'm using Lemoyne as an example, but people who come to Lemoyne come because it's peaceful. They might want to go to Lemoyne Beach or Marble Beach. They might come from neighboring towns or counties, or they might visit from away, but they don't come there for that type of tourism experience. There's a, there's a lot of different types of tourism. So I think, number one, you're right, we have to preserve towns so that the people who have grown up there can have still have their town and it's not being completely changed the character but you could even look at it from the point of view of visitors who come and what are they coming for for peace and quiet and and to engage with nature and wildlife and i know that the that cpex this developer had a sort of an ecotourism model they have this whole concept of clear skies and looking at the stars I understand what they were trying to do, but I think as Mainers, it's our role to to know really clearly what Maine offers and to protect that even for visitors. And I think there needs there needs to be rural places in this country and in Maine so that people, you know, it's for residents in Lemoyne, but I've heard a lot of people who live in, you know, Ellsworth and for Harbor and other places also concerned about this development because they enjoy coming to Lemoyne to relax. So we're really hoping that we can have more conservation in Lemoyne and offer more places that people can come that are to, you know, engage with nature. I think that what other towns might want to consider or learn from us, number one, we got our moratorium language from other moratoriums in other towns. And we worked with our attorneys, but I took the language from other moratoriums and I put that together as a starting point. They happened to be busy that week and we were on a time crunch. So I did that. And then they worked to make sure it was all legally sound and added quite a bit to it. So you can work with a land use attorney and these moratoriums are very effective. I also would say that if you have a comprehensive plan rely on that. And if you don't have one, then please, or, or one hasn't been up to date recently, then I would say get involved to get your comprehensive plan up to date. But even if you don't have a comprehensive plan that expresses a certain vision, you can, you can by citizen's petition, enact a moratorium, because essentially a moratorium is just a way to take a pause on development that the current land use ordinance is not prepared to address. Lemoyne received a proposal for a resort and glamp ground, and yet we had no mention of glamp ground or resort in our land use ordinance. So the reason for the moratorium is to allow the planning board, which essentially is a group of people who use the land use ordinance to make decisions on developments. If those development proposals are not described in the land use ordinance, Imagine it makes it very difficult for them to approve those proposals. So moratoriums are not so much, you know, politically controversial as just an opportunity for the planning board to put put that language into the ordinance. And because planning boards don't often have a lot of time or they have a limited time, during that time of the moratorium, that development is halted, allowing them time for them to review the ordinance. So it's also sort of a time management tool. I would also recommend that people seek out land use attorneys, as I've said, 
And with that, we just had to raise the money to get a retainer. I I think it's very it's very useful, and I would really recommend Murray Plum and Murray in uh, Portland and Beth Boppel. She's worked on a lot of environmental projects in Maine. You have a website. Is there information on there that people could look at, including I think the language of the referendum is there as well, right? Yes. Yes. So the website is growinglemoineresponsibly.org. Thanks for talking with us today, Amy. Anything else you want to add? If anybody wants to reach out, I'd love to talk to anyone to who's, you know, working on similar projects. And they can contact you through the website? Yes. That was Amy Morley of Growing Lemoyne Responsibly. And that website again is growinglemoineresponsibly.org. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Up next, Dr. Charles Rolski, the new director of the Shaw Institute in Blue Hill, talks about their plans for the future. We've interrupted yeah. you in the middle of a work day. So what were you up to <laughs> this morning? We, this, unfortunately, this is the last week that we had our summer interns and our summer interns help us do a lot of our community-based sampling. So we, we go around local beaches and ensure that they're safe for people to swim. And we're looking for specifically fecal bacteria, which is a growing issue all around the country. And then also looking for phytoplankton that are associated with things like red tide. So mm-hmm. we, we sample and, and then we'll post the results so that people know where and where not to swim. Great, great. So you're out doing that this morning. You're relatively new in the role of executive director at Shaw Institute. So before we get into the work that Shaw Institute does, a little bit about your background before you came to this role as the executive director of the Shaw Institute. Sure. I joined, I actually moved to Maine with my wife last year and we previously were in Arizona. So a very similar climate as you can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, just Um, wait until January. Right. Yeah. So I was I was working at it's actually the largest university in the United States at Arizona State University. I was doing a postdoc in a a material science lab. So I had done all my my BS, my master's and my PhD in Arizona. And uh, my background is in plastic pollution. Uh, I do quite a bit of outreach, but environmental contamination is kind of my thing. Um, But very, very diverse background from doing plastic pollution to field work. Uh, where we use dogs to smell killer whale poop. So very, very diverse background. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is that. So what, wait, let's go back to that for a second. Why are you having dogs identify killer whale poop? So I did a really cool internship off the coast of Washington and we worked with an endangered subspecies of killer whales. And the challenge was to learn all about their health without stressing them out. So we couldn't get within 200 yards so therefore, we got creative and trained a rescue dog to smell their, their poop from the boat. And that way, we could collect it and learn all about their health without stressing them out. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. So the plastic thing, too, I want to go back to because I read that you were, uh, I, I don't know if it's you were instrumental in or if it was your discovery, but there was a finding from something that you were involved in that the plastic, that the like casing of the pods for laundry detergent and dishwasher detergent actually when they disintegrate they put more plastic into the environment can you talk about that a little bit yep one of the most proud moments of of probably my life was writing that paper with my co-worker and colleague Varun Kalkar Dr. Varun Kalkar he and, and basically we wanted to understand what the material was and because it's water soluble, just like salt is, it, it disappears and we think out of sight, out of mind. But it's very much just a conventional plastic. So it just 
it ends up in the solution and kind of becomes a solution and instantly becomes a pollutant because it we found that around 25% of it gets broken down within a wastewater treatment plant, but the remaining 75% goes into ecosystems beyond and how it behaves as a pollutant, we still don't know. So this is something we're following up on and we're, we're actually pursuing more research in the, in the area, but it's this very unique field of studying soft water soluble plastics that really hasn't been done very much before. And it seems like something that people have been really interested in, especially with all the PFAS information that's been out there trying to find sources for that. And I I remember there were these little microbeads maybe 10 years ago that were in like cleansers and things that were going into the uh, water, but I hadn't heard of that about those pods. And I wonder if they also put little coating of that, you know, plastic all over everything else that's in the dishwasher too. It's, it's kind of a scary, you know, concept for us right now. And, and especially because the EPA doesn't really recognize it as being a pollutant, this type of material. So therefore they kind of promote it as being safe and eco-friendly. And so all of these companies can kind of take advantage of that and say, oh, it's biodegradable, it's eco-friendly, it's plastic free. When in reality, we don't know the extent of that. But so far, the literature suggests that it's going to act like most other plastics behave in the environment, which isn't great. Mm. So you mentioned that you were uh, doing some beach monitoring this morning. Do different groups have uh, different parts of the coast that they monitor? I know there's a place where you can get a beach report for the day during the summer. Yeah, there's a, Maine has a really wonderful system of, of monitoring beaches. They have Maine Healthy Beaches and DMR. Um, they're both responsible for keeping an eye on everything here. And it's it's a really wonderful system. And, and we're happy to be a part of it. We we receive a lot of tourism here in Blue Hill in the summer. So it's great that we can kind of tool around and provide this as a service for the community members and for the tourists. I've read on the Shaw Institute website that one of the things that you're committed to, and this was a question that I had before I went there to look, is connecting the results of the studies that you do with impacts on human health. And also, it sounds like you do some lobbying or professional uh testifying before uh, Congress or the state legislatures, or tell me a little bit more about that, what kinds of things you do. So we were started by Susan Shaw, amazing ecotoxicologist. She recently passed away. Um, She did a lot of lobbying and a lot of work on policy and reform, and it was really impressive. It's something that we're we're, we're keeping the momentum going. Uh, And in relation to the first part of your question, it's it's kind of sad how we've become normalized to pollution now. It's like, oh, yeah, plastics in the environment. Yeah, it's, it's what happens. So we're, we're kind of trying to push it here and, and take it to the next step. And so we actually just started collaborating with Harvard and NYU on studies where we're actually extracting microplastics and nanoplastics from human tissue. So our, our study with NYU is strictly focusing on human placentas. They have an, this amazing system, uh, this amazing group of women that donate their placentas to a better understand kind of contamination as it as it pertains to human health. And, you know, they scratched their head and, and thought, well, there's so many exposure sources of plastic, let's start looking at this. So currently in 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 our building, we do this work, which is really uh, another thing we're very proud of. And then Harvard is really interested in looking at how patients with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and cancer are affected by microplastic contamination, because any type of inflammatory response might inhibit their ability to, to fight the diseases that they're fighting. So we're doing both of those in an effort to con- directly connect the plastic, the, the plastics themselves with human health. And, and both systems have an amazing life history for the people. And it ha- there's a lot of opportunity for further research. So it's, it's a really an amazing collaboration that we have with both organizations. 
How do you pick the projects that the Shaw Institute is going to pursue? Because there are, I would guess, a lot of different directions you could go in with this type of thing. It's important for us to have a, a really big community impact and then a really good collaborative network. And this one kind of happened by chance. I've been doing plastic research my whole academic career and word of mouth connected one person to the other that connected me to these individuals. And then we ended up finding a lot of common ground. And so this is this has kind of happened organically and it's created even more momentum for us. And, and we're now building one of the first actual microplastic extraction facilities that, that we're actually going to dedicate to this concept. And it doesn't have to be limited to humans. It can be anything from bivalves like oysters to any other tissue sample we receive. We also do quite a bit of work with marine mammals in the area. So it, it's going to be one of our focal points moving forward. And um, you know, it's something that's that we could write grants for and proposals. And um, But again, we like to have a really diverse set of things that we work on. And all of that is then converted into community outreach materials so that we can uh, be able to connect with the with the locals around us and get them to be empowered by it because that's one of my biggest issues with science is how inaccessible that it can be. Microplastic extraction methods is that to extract the microplastics from bodies to study it or to extract is that something that could be used to filter it somehow or out of water supplies? There, yeah, there are emerging technologies that can be used to filter microplastics. And I think it's now becoming more of a thing where people have this focus on it. And whether it's through litigation or policy, there's more concern around it. When I say extraction facility, I mean, some doctor X wants to know about the microplastics on, effect on Y and sends us some sort of tissue sample that we can then digest and then filter and then analyze the contents. Sometimes that's done in collaboration with Colby College, and sometimes it's done um, just in the building here because we have an instrument capable of analyzing plastics. Now, you're working on the plastics program. Are there other scientists there? You're the senior research scientist, as well as being the executive director, but I assume there are other scientists involved in looking at your board of directors and your advisors. I know there are a lot of scientists involved, but how many scientists are actually doing hands-on work aside from the interns that you have in the summer? And are they working on different projects or do you all work together on one? We have a full-time staff of two and wow. a part-time staff of three. And uh, our associate scientist, Michelle, kind of does external work. So she works above the lab. I, I take on a lot of the lab work myself. And we kind of divide it up that way. That way, and Michelle's background is a lot to do with marine mammal research and using marine mammals as indicators of environmental health. So she has her hands full working on grants for that. Meanwhile, I take on everything else. So most of the time, if it's in the lab, it's me doing it by myself. Mm. Hope, when, hopefully, as we get more funding, we can expand out. But for the time being, that's what it's looking like. Wow, it's a big project, big undertaking. Where does the funding come from? I know you're a nonprofit, a 501c3. Do, is it grants or do people make donations or how do you get your funding? Before I arrived here, it was pretty much all donor-based. There were a couple of grants here and there, but but not primarily. There wasn't really a heavy leaning on grants. But now that I'm here, I'm very proposal and grant-driven, which is why I like to work on projects that are extremely relevant to what's going on around us. So we we applied for one NIH proposal, and I'm not going to speak too soon. It's looking pretty decent. And then we have another one we're applying for next year. So for me, the, the kind of perfect world is to be able to to do really important research, connect with our communities around us. And if they feel empowered to, to support the work, then that's a really wonderful system to be in. And what ways do you connect with the community? Do you have events there? Or yeah, we have a lot of events. 
Yeah, we we participate with pretty much everything that goes on in the community. So there was a there's a local maritime festival. We were there. Any anything local, we're we're going to be there. We also host school groups. So I like to give talks to to kids of all ages. I take them in the lab, show them how to use the instruments. We have some whale bones donated from Allied Whale and Bar Harbor that we can put sort of events around. And then a lot of times I'll go to assisted living facilities and speak with the residents there. I'll go to local schools dressed as Charlie the Shark and read books to kids <laughs> about the ocean and show that scientists aren't kind of these stuffy you know, people that they're portrayed to be. And so we do a lot. And then we design a lot of outreach activities in order to connect with the public. And my wife, Danny, works with me. Her background's in education and outreach. And so I lean on her you know, to do a lot of that work with me because I'm not as good at, I can come up with the science, I'm not as good at, at designing activities. So we do way too many outreach events, but it's so, it just fills our battery. You know, it's every time we can connect with kids or adults of all ages, it's really rewarding. Yeah, definitely. And uh, if someone, if a teacher is listening to this and has a class they'd like to maybe bring sometime in the fall, would they just go to your website and email you all and ask about that? Or what's the process for having a presentation done or at a retirement home or wherever? Absolutely. Yeah. So our, our info at shawinstitute.org email address is really good. I will say that our, our website is changing very soon. It's been a, uh, a quite a process, you know, for us to make that transition. But we're really happy with the new website that's coming out. And that'll be a lot more specific to what we're doing currently. And uh, but yeah, any the website still has some information there. That email address is probably the best one to reach us. And we're happy to put together some events to connect with school groups and teachers alike. Great. And what else would you like the community to know about the work that you're doing, how they can participate, anything like that? We we wish we had more time to design a volunteer program and and do even more than we're currently doing. Um, so we just kind of ask people to to come by. You know, if you have the opportunity to be in Blue Hill and you want to learn about what we're doing, send me an email. I'll give you a tour of the lab. I'll show you all the work that we're that we're currently undertaking. We we want to be a lot more open than than what happened in the past. I think uh, people kind of lost sight of the Institute because the Institute closed its doors for a while, especially when the founder became ill. So there's a perception that just people don't know what we do. And so I, I really am working hard to change that. And we want to be as accessible to folks as possible. So really, I encourage people to send me an email if they'd like to learn more about the work we're doing, if they'd like to have a tour, that's going to be something that we provide. And then uh, we're excited for the summer. We're, next summer, we're going to get a touch tank. That was a big thing that used to be here and it, it was given away. So I'm, I'm bringing it back. And uh, But yeah, please keep up with what we're working on. And, and again, feel free to reach out whenever and we're happy to, to chat and schedule a tour. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. That was Dr. Charles Rolski of the Shaw Institute in Blue Hill, where he is the new director. In our next segment today, we're continuing our series of profiles of WERU's public affairs producers with a conversation with Rhonda Feynman and Petra Hall of Healthy Options. Hi, Amy. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and I am the host of Healthy Options. I also have been a licensed acupuncturist and herbalist here in Belfast for just celebrating my 30th anniversary. I cannot believe it, but it is 30 years. And I bring that to our Healthy Options program, really trying to educate and explore topics that maybe people aren't as familiar with uh, about healing and health 
And uh, in a past life, as we say, <laughs> I was uh, a radio producer as well and worked at National Public Radio and um, was a sound engineer and recorded jazz. So I have a whole music background and, and I'm a, uh, actually have been a jazz singer as well. And, and we have not, we have yet to break into song on healthy options, but we don't rule anything out here in WERU land. So that's, that's a little bit about what I'm doing. And, and here's the uh, co-producer. Well, I'm, I'm supposed to be the silent co-producer, but I'm, I'm being outed here. So <laughs> uh, working with Rhonda on this healthy options uh, endeavor. And I mostly, well, I, I, consult about the topics and ideas for questions. And then afterwards, um, I put together uh, with Rhonda the archives so that they're accessible, which is a really great thing to have. We didn't have that years ago uh, when we all started out in community radio. And that's a wonderful thing because if you happen to miss any of the program, as we say, you can find that in the archives and um, it's there accessible for whenever. And I just want to say that about when I say the word accessible, I think of community radio being the, the image of accessibility. Now we have all kinds of other ways to get words out and ideas and, and all of that. But what started for me is the idea that I could make a program. I could go on the air um, having heard community radio when I was a kid um, WBAI, yay. Um, I went into college radio because I thought that that would be important uh, to put music on the air that I hadn't heard anywhere. And then I worked with the news and public affairs department at KFAI Minneapolis and really learned a lot about talking to people and finding out people's stories. So that brings us up to today. Um, although I did um, contribute many stories to Pacifica, the, the radio network, and even some to all things considered. Well, Petra, I think you're being a, a little bit um, modest because you are an award-winning radio producer. She, you've won a Golden Reel Award from the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. And um, in addition, you have been on All Things Considered on National Public Radio. Wow. Got the Susan Stamberg giggle for those of a certain era who understand what that means. Um, so I think that uh, there's quite a lot of experience in your silent production. I guess that goes without saying. Huh. <laughs> Back to you, Rhonda. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, we've had you in the studio for, I think, every single show, Petra, and every once in a great while you'll actually say something. But we wanted to bring you on this interview, too, because you are obviously such an integral part of the uh, of the process. While Rhonda does the hosting, you are often like writing notes and passing them to her. And I, I assume you're probably involved with the background planning, too. We'll get to that in a minute. How did you, you so you both have public radio and community radio backgrounds Rhonda, 30 years working as an alternative health provider. What actually, what is your title? It's a, a doctor of, is it naturopathy or? No, no, I'm an acupuncturist. So I'm a licensed acupuncturist in New Mexico where I'm also licensed. It's called a doctor of Asian medicine. So uh, there is that title, but that allows me to do acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. I'm also licensed as a Chinese medical um, herbalist in, in Maine and, and New Mexico and so, yeah, I, I see, uh, I have a general practice, so I see all sorts of, of, of topics and, and 
issues that are going on. I also practice and have taught Tai Chi. So 30 years, it's, I, I can't even believe it, but I uh, started here in uh, Belfast in 1992, 93. And um, here we are. And things are still going strong through, through the pandemic and through ice storms and whatever you, whatever you name. We, whatever uh, man can throw at us. <laughs> Recessions and, uh, you know, hot summers. It's all, it's all been happening here for 30 years. And I want to bring that, the information uh, that I've been studying and have learned, and then things that my clients and, and, and people I speak with, questions that they bring to me, and uh, try to be timely. So we, we do certainly programs about uh, in, uh, tick in, infection awareness and, you know, things like brown tail moths. So on, on that level, but also things like music therapy and Alexander technique is something we just did recently. And um, Tai Chi has been something. And, and we've even brought in health, money health, uh, financial health, because that actually can affect our nervous systems and our whole, oh, yeah. we all know what that means. So it, it doesn't sound like a healthy options topic, but it really is to, to bring in all these things that are part of our, and our daily lives. And the other piece that has uh, in, informed the show in the last number of years has been trauma resiliency. And I'm really proud of, of the work and the, and the guests that we've had who really talk about that. And, and people have noticed, if, if you've been listening, that we always do something practical. We always do some experiential radio. You get to do something. If, if we're doing a trauma show, you, we get to learn some of the techniques about how to deal with your own nervous system. If we're doing the Alexander technique, we, we practiced that kind of thing. Meditation, we've practiced that. Uh, although we it, we can't be silent for 15 minutes. So. <laughs> you have done short meditations on the air, though. And I remember you had yes. an art therapist in at one time. And so we did a little live Facebook video in addition to the radio show. But I think yeah. people just hearing it also were getting enough of a narrative that they could understand what was going on, if, even if they didn't see the video part. Yes, I think we did a five rhythms class. Uh, at, at literally a class, but for, uh, you know, people may not know this, but you can't just play all the, the music you may want to. There are all these things about licensing as there right. should be for uh, giving uh, musicians uh, their due. So we, uh, we had to do our own percussion. That was one of the early shows. <laughs> um, that was really fun. And I think one of the first ones I did was uh, about, what was it about um, brain? It was the first one. What was it? With Mona Lisa Schultz. Yes. What was that? It was about brain health. Brain health. And and in the middle of it, I think we had models because we're always doing things. We had models of a brain and I think the brain fell into the tea or something. Yeah, I remember stem. that. Yeah, no, the brain stem <laughs> jumped off and fell into the tea. And, and so we were cracking up, but we had to maintain our composure. We are professionals. On the air. And nowadays, if that happened, what would happen? We'd incorporate it and say, oh, my goodness, this must mean something. That's, That's right. We, we... <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've had wonderful uh, experiences. And and that's really what I'm, I'm both of us are, are, are Petra Holland and myself, Rhonda Feynman. We're trying to bring into the world of healthy options and things that are useful, um, hopefully, and maybe introduce people to something that may be valuable. And I think the, the trauma work has has been quite extraordinary and we've done it from many different levels. We've done it from uh, abuse survivors. We've done it from, uh, 
from people who uh, had ACEs. We did a whole show on adverse childhood experiences, and we've done a number of these shows. And I think that that really helps people think that they're, you know, know that they're not alone in in whatever they're experiencing. And I think that's that's part of it as well. I'm I'm in the future. I'm looking to get some uh, ex- uh, people to talk about stroke uh, rehab, but also stroke prevention. What can we do? Uh, and what are the signs of stroke? Sometimes people don't know that. So, you know, from that kind of really nuts and bolts to more esoteric things, which I think uh, are, are valuable uh, as well. And this isn't just, it's not just things we're hearing about or we're imagining. We know people who have gone through these things or are going through these things. And we say, well, how can we in our community bring up these topics, explore it, and bring it out to the community, bring it out to people who may not have thought of this before or who might be going through it and need that kind of information and that support. And that goes to the idea that radio is interactive, right? We listen and we conjure up images. So it's not just, oh, I'm hearing something, I'm getting some information. It's also, it's experiential. And that's the beauty of it, really. Good radio will evoke those images so you can even do that with a health program. Yes. Right. yes. When you were mentioning that brain falling in the tea, I actually remember that happening. I, I was engineering that show. Uh, I'm trying to remember when that was, though. Oh. Do you remember what year you started? 2006, I think. Really? Yeah, yeah 06. Wasn't it something... <laughs> I, I almost said earlier, but no, I think it was something along those lines. And, you know, we had other hosts. I think Cynthia Squan, let's give her, a, mm-hmm. a, as we say, a, a recognition mm-hmm. for starting this show. And Andre Bella was part mm-hmm. of it. And I was brought on. And then they went off to different adventures. And I have uh, been doing this by myself for years, which has been very rewarding. There is no shortage of guests and topics, and and I really like to give people a chance in this in this micro, you know, fifteen second soundbite world. It's such a luxury and a privilege to be able to allow people to really explain and and share what they're doing in great detail and in ways that that give us the nuance, not just hey, this is happening, but what does that mean that this is happening? And I think that's that's the brilliance of community radio. And I think one of the programs I do want to, uh, to mention in particular is that people really, I got a lot of feedback for was when we did something about osteoporosis and we, from, the, from Cynthia Pearson and the National Women's Health Network. And we, we hope to have her back on or someone from that uh, area back on, uh, organization back on, because there are so many aspects of things that are every day in women's lives and in people's lives that um, we don't get some of the nuances or we don't understand about some other less conventional treatments that are being used around the world that are not necessarily available in the United States. So I want to allow people to know that, wait, osteoporosis is treated a little differently in London. It's treated differently in Germany. And so we can bring that in and then we could talk to our own practitioners and our and, and start advocating to get some of the um, some of those very time tested and, and, and proven treatments uh, available to us as well. And I think that's a great service. It goes with the name Healthy Options. So any previews of what's coming up on Healthy Options? Do you have any things in the works that you can let us in on? 
Well, I'm I'm hoping to do a show on stroke um, prevention and treatment. I'm also hoping to get someone in. I have I have some feelers out about audio about um, hearing loss and what somebody who is an audiologist and can l- look at what's how to how to deal with hearing hearing loss that so many people are experiencing from uh, from youth. From youth, so, I should, to older I, age, yeah. Yeah, I have a pediatric uh, um, audiologist that I'm hoping to talk with. And to, like, what are the signs? What what would you look for in your child if there's a, a problem? Um, and also right up to what's what happens with the aging process? Does your hearing, does it have to change? Um, those kinds of things. And what's available now? Because there's so much out there. I'd also like to get back to, we did a whole show on how to do medical research. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping we can do something again on that because that was really useful. Um, we had the the medical librarian from in Augusta on and she was great because there's so much misinformation on the internet. That, I mean, it's so incredible that you get information, but you have to look very carefully. Is this sponsored by some drug company? Mm-hmm. That's not the Medicaid. That's not that. So those kinds of things um, are are in the works. I'm always uh, happy to hear from people as well. If there's something on your mind or I would really I've heard about this treatment strategy. Is this something um, I should be following up on? So I'm happy to happy to talk to people um, so you can you can uh, you can get inf- information what through the station. Mm-hmm. Just email news yeah. at WERU dot org and put healthy options in the subject line. That would that would be great. And um yeah, so once again, you know, there is so much there's so much out there and I'm so proud and privileged to be able to share everything with to share these things with all of you. And I'm still I have to lie down now because I've been practicing for thirty years. So <laughs> I I can't believe it. So, you know. Uh, so I'm just going to go rest now after this. And Did you just but, make but yourself tired? That, yeah. yeah. About, about taking care of yourself. And, and then you'll right. spring back. Right. So perhaps right. we should just take a moment now to breathe. <laughs> take a moment. Everybody breathe in and breathe out. It's all good. And you can hear Healthy Options on the first Wednesday of every month. And because you're listening to Main Currents on the first Tuesday of the month, all you have to do is tune in at the same time tomorrow to catch healthy options. But as Rhonda said earlier, or I think actually Peter was talking about it, there are archives that date back years. And if you have any questions about ticks, the tick programs are so exhaustively referenced and linked and so much information there, including some main providers had several people over the years who've been very interested in the uh, providers list that you put together for the folks who work up around Lincoln, I believe it is. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and I do want to remind everyone of my, uh, the healthy options program that had to do, that we did during the pandemic with Miriam Werman, Dr. Werman about washing your hands. So breathe and wash your hands. Always good (laughs) advice. Well, we will leave it there. I can't believe it's actually been that many years since the brain drop. (laughs) And again, you can catch the September edition of Healthy Options produced by Rhonda Feynman and Peter Hall, my guests today on the first Wednesday of every month, including tomorrow from 4 to 5 p.m. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Up next, an update on the landfill expansion request that drew strong opposition from Bucksport residents. We covered the issue here on Maine Currents earlier in the year. Here's the latest.
AIM, or American Iron and Metal, is a Canada-based multinational corporation that owns a property in Bucksport adjacent to the old mill site that includes a problematic landfill. When they approached the town asking to reopen the landfill, residents organized to oppose it, including today's repeat guest, Don White, who joins us with an update that may not be the end of the story, but it's being celebrated as good news. Yeah, we have some very good news. The state has taken a position on the landfill, Ames Landfill, that was the old mill site, and has asked them to close it. It's a fairly strongly worded letter, and I'm impressed by its strength, and it has ordered them to close it, give them plans by 2024, January of 2024, and complete the entire closure as of 2026. It's been a long time coming. They've been in violation since 2016, so uh, I'm glad DEP finally has responded to to the will of the citizens of Bucksport. When I interviewed you and town manager Sue Lassard, I think mentioned this too earlier in the year, and the other folks that, that I've talked with from Bucksport, they were in violation with DEP for quite some time before that, right? The DEP just hadn't yes, tried to enforce they've anything? Been in, they've been in considerable violation since 2016, and DEP has, unfortunately, has not addressed that until, re, until now. And I think that's because of all the hubbub here in, in Bucksport, because as you remember, we had a couple of big citizens forums and we brought down our friends from the beleaguered uh, Juniper Ridge situation and the, and the press caught on to it and, and town quickly turned and we turned, I think, the council and, and certainly the town manager came around. So it's a pretty unified team now. And I think when DEP realized that the town was serious and really wanted this thing closed, that they, they took it to they started paying real attention to it. And so this would be a permanent closure? It can't be reopened? Yeah, it would be a, it would be a permanent closure if it's accomplished. It's not over. AIM has replied through their senior legal counsel, no comment yet, and they are examining their position. So, I mean, it's not closed yet. They're a big, strong outfit. And the last time a town told them they didn't want them to reopen their landfill, they sued the town. But unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully. So, but this was a pretty, they they now have the citizens, they now have the administration of Bucksport, and they now have the state lined up in in terms of uh, opposing their uh, wanting to reopen and expand the landfill for whatever, whatever it is, whatever trash they want to bring in. And what the DEP is ordering them to do, does that look satisfactory in terms of preventing some of the leakage you were talking about, things that were leaching well, out it, of the pits already? As we speak, as we speak, there's untreated leachate going into the Penobscot River, as we speak. And that's a loophole in the laws. It's a ridiculous requirement. Uh, it would, what, the, what the DEP is going to ask them to do is to shore up their leachate pond situation, which has been neglected and, and basically let go for a long time. And it has just been uh, spewing out raw leachate since then. And all winter they pumped it out because there was so much there. The DEP has asked for closure and... Um, and for them to treat their leachate uh, as best they can. Whether they're going to require uh, a full treatment package, I don't think so. But it will stop any any further development of the situation. And they've got to clean their pond and clean their pipes and all the stuff they've failed to do 
So it'll make the, it'll make the leachate issue better. I'm not sure it'll remediate everything. What is their deadline? Do they have one to uh, deadline before they, they need have, to? They have to get to plans. They have to they have to do closure plan. They're supposed to. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be in contact with DEP here soon. They're supposed to, by January 1st of this coming year, provide complete closure plans and to mitigate some of the issues that are there now. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. There's, there's, there, nothing's over until it's over. That report originally aired on Around Town this morning. Starting next week, Around Town will be on every weekday at 8 a.m. during Morning Maine. It's a short feature, just about five minutes in length. If you have news from your town to share, please email me at news at weru.org. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. We're on the first Tuesday of every month at 4 o'clock, archived and also available as a podcast. Just check things out at weru.org. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening. And keep it tuned here to your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org. And don't forget our smartphone app.